This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is, without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. With an anti-abortion majority on the Supreme Court and several states attempting to outlaw abortion altogether, many activists are on the defensive, hoping to hold on to reproductive rights in a few places and cases. This spirited book shows how feminism can start winning again. Jenny Brown uncovers a century of legal abortion in the United States until 1873, recalls women's experiences in the illegal days, and shows how the women's liberation movement of the 1960s really won abortion rights. She draws inspiration and lessons from the radicals of the Red Stockings, the Army of Three, and the Jane Collective, putting together a roadmap for today's organizers from the black feminist argument for reproductive justice, the successful fight to make the morning-after pill available over-the-counter, and the recent mass movement to repeal Ireland's abortion ban. Brown argues that politically conservative nonprofits have been setting the agenda, emphasizing rare tragic cases and relying on the rhetoric of choice and privacy. Instead, it is time to return to the fundamental ideas that won legal abortion in the first place. Women publicly telling the full truth of their own experience, demanding repeal of all abortion restrictions, and showing how abortion and birth control are the key demands in the struggle for women's freedom. Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The founders of the United States proclaimed independence from Britain, of course. But independence for who, exactly? Freedom has long been defined as the opposite of slavery. But the problem for the founders wasn't so much that slavery existed. White settler elites in British America complained that they were unjustly being treated like slaves, rather than as equal subjects of a crown to which they had until quite late in the game sworn emphatic allegiance. After all, many founders owned enslaved black people. This wasn't by accident. In the long tradition of small-r Republican thinking to which the founders were heirs, freedom wasn't just the opposite of slavery. Freedom, in fact, required that others be enslaved. Seen in this context, of freedom for some being premised on the enslavement of Africans— the dispossession of indigenous people, and the disenfranchisement of women and propertyless men, the universal proclamation that all men were created equal ran up against the founders' sharply circumscribed vision of who the people were. 
But according to my guest today, Alex Gorovich, therein lay a contradiction. Gorovich writes about how labor radicals in the early 19th century began to articulate a notion of Republican freedom, that's small r Republican, that described the emerging wage labor system as a form of slavery, wage slavery. After the Civil War, the Knights of Labor took those politics further and insisted that the people could only be free if workers controlled the economy. This is what I'm talking about today with Gorovich, the author of From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth, Labor and Republican Liberty in the 19th Century. Alex hopes that the Knights' vision might inspire us today, in part because we do politics these days with such an impoverished vocabulary. In the mainstream framing, the differences between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are elided because they are both described as very liberal candidates. What if we discard this vocabulary and think about freedom instead? What sort of politics does freeing everyone, liberation, require? How would we then conceive of justice as not just a matter of breaking up and constraining corporate power above, but also of building up worker power from below? New language obviously won't save us and it won't win any particular election or any particular strike. But as the left builds power in this country, we must also recast how we describe both the world as it exists and the world that we are fighting to create. Putting freedom at the center of our politics might be one way to do that. Also, we briefly touch on Alex's position in favor of Lexit, which many will no doubt take issue with, though we only touch on it very briefly. If you want more on the Lexit debate, I recommend that you listen to my June interview with Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose, which gets into a bit more depth on the subject, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Anyhow, before we get this interview going, I want to take a very quick moment and remind you that this podcast only exists because those of you listeners, people listening to me right now, who can afford to support us at patreon.com slash the dig, do so. And I'm truly very grateful for that. Many podcasts, no shade intended, just the facts, put up paywalls to raise money. We do not do that because the entire point of this podcast since day one has been to provide complex and ruthless criticism of all that exists to help you the organizers and activists at the core of this new moment of left insurgents make sense of the world in order to change it. And so that requires making every single episode free to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. So if you can afford to support us, but have not yet done so, please take a few quick minutes and contribute whatever you can at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have free left-wing books to send you in the mail as a thank you if you contribute $10 a month or more. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. I get an email every time someone donates and it means the world to me. Okay, here's Alex Gorovich, a professor of political science at Brown University. His first book was From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth, Labor and Republican Liberty in the 19th Century. And he is currently writing a book on the right to strike. Alex Gorovich, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start by asking you to to briefly describe the key argument of your book and also who the Knights of Labor were and what this labor republicanism they espoused was. And then I want to pause on that and get into the chronology of the book. But to start off, who were the Knights? What did they do and what did they believe in? Great. Uh, that's a great question, Dan. Um, so the Knights of Labor was a large, really the largest political organization of workers in the 19th century. It, At its peak around 1886, had about a million formal members, but probably more that were participating in the activities but were not yet formal members. And it was this massive transracial movement of workers that included and really was the only political organization of workers of this size to to organize so many different workers until really the CIO of the 30s. But it included everyone from you know, Massachusetts shoemakers to Colorado miners to Southwestern uh, railroad workers to Southern cotton pickers. I mean, it was it was a really dramatic post-war, post-Civil War organization of labor. And their fundamental idea and the basis on which they wanted to organize these workers was, as they said, to abolish wage labor and substitute in a form of cooperative production. So by cooperative production, they meant instead of having workers who had nothing but their labor power to sell, they didn't use quite that formulation, but it was basically what they understood. Instead of having an economy based on that idea where you had a class of wage laborers and then a class of employers who owned them, they thought that freedom required that everybody be in control of their own labor activity. And that meant that the economy should be organized on the basis of workers' cooperatives. So that meant that workers would own and control the the conditions of their own – own and control their own workplace. So unlike other aspects of the cooperative movement at the time, they weren't just talking about like consumer cooperatives, which would sort of buy at cost and sell at cost. They were into that, but they thought it was fundamentally about emancipating workers by having them control the day-to-day operations of the workplace – and thereby sort of enjoy the full fruits of their labor. And this idea was understandably very attractive to many workers. Um, They thought because they made that appeal to all workers, regardless of race, gender, or creed, at least at their best, it was what led them to appeal to everything from 
southwestern Mexican workers on the railroads in places like what was now New Mexico to southern black cotton workers to northern white shoemakers and everybody in between. Um, so we can, we can get into the details of just how egalitarian it was, but especially for the 19th century, the appeal to everyone on the basis of their freedom meant was really attractive to um, many different workers. And notably, it meant that they also appealed to industrial workers, which existing craft unions hadn't really done and is what made them attractive to so many workers who had otherwise not been part of uh, any kind of formal labor movement uh, and why at their peak they – they were so large and so dangerous to the ruling class. I mean, many members of the ruling class were very afraid of them. To understand labor republicanism and this conception of freedom that you're talking about, we have to talk about a little bit about the broader history yeah. of republicanism. And yeah. to do that, we have to go a lot further back than this podcast normally goes, which is to class society in ancient Athens and Rome, when when it was a very different philosophy than the one that the Knights of Labor were espousing. It was a philosophy that defined freedom as the opposite of slavery, but that embraced slavery as a good thing because it was the basis of aristocrats' freedom. How was it that freedom-guaranteeing institutions emerged alongside slavery not as an accident, but that they emerged as a necessity. Yeah, good. That's that's a great question. So I didn't. So in the book, I, when I talk about the Knights of Labor, I say they're the kind of pinnacle of a certain kind of thing, a certain tradition of thought called labor republicanism. And I imagine republicanism for most people means like the Republican Party. But in yeah, fact, they really ruined that word. <laughs> which they really ruined that word. Although interesting, at their founding, they were actually much closer to right, it. Right, the right. kind of the free soil, free labor. Right. Free men yeah. idea was actually really on this trajectory and it was natural for them to also be abolitionists, which is really the question. So what is republicanism? So the idea is this. It gets its name from the ancient republics. But really there are three different things that are republicanism. One is all the complicated political ideas and institutions of ancient Greece, really Athens and Rome. That's one phase in what we would call republicanism. And then there is the rediscovery of the political ideas of these ancient republics in the early modern period when political texts by figures like Aristotle and Cicero are rediscovered and people start thinking about reorganizing the, these polities, not on the basis of like Christian ideas or divine right, but what they think they find in the ancient republics, which is this idea of self-rule. So freedom as not being under the power of someone else, but being under your own power. And then th those ideas develop over time up until the late 19th century, which is the period that I look at. Uh, and then there is in contemporary academia something called republicanism, but it's almost entirely an academic discourse. And right. outside academia, nobody really talks about it anymore because we have our modern ideas of socialism and liberalism. And maybe at some point we can talk about how one becomes the other. So – so your question was, Definitely. <laughs> what, is, what is this core idea of freedom and republicanism and how is it related to slavery? And I think that's a, that's a really complicated question. But there's, the short answer is this. In the ancient republics, the way in which the poorer members of Athens 
and Rome win their freedom is by arguing that they shouldn't be allowed as citizens of these republics to be reduced to a condition of dependence, to become slaves. And so they, in Athens and in Rome, the really the it's always seen to be the birth of Athenian democracy and Roman republicanism when you create a status called the citizen, that whose status is in part just constituted by the idea that they cannot become slaves. And in both cases, the first thing that happens is specifically the abolition of debt slavery. So you cannot be made a slave if you are indebted. Um, and interestingly, in the 19th century in the US, they had to do that all over again to abolish basically debt peonage. So, but the thing was, the only way in which these poor members of the Athenian and the Roman republics, for all the differences of these two different ancient republics, the only way in which they could win their freedom was by permitting non-citizens to be enslaved. So you had at the birth of this idea of freedom, of not being subject to the arbitrary power of some wealthier member of society or those who control the state, you had the birth of this idea of freedom together with the institution of slavery because there was a sort of freedom class compromise. So you had a class of people who could become citizens and as citizens, they were under their own power. They, had a, they were supposed to have access to land. They couldn't be made slaves and so on. But the wealthy oligarchy only kind of agreed to this on condition that they could find some alternate source of dependent labor, which was slaves. And so when these ideas about being free or self-ruling are rediscovered in the modern period, for a while, a lot of people really thought of this in similar terms, that there was a group of people who could be free. They could only be free in a society that was in some way democratic. It was self-ruling in which all the citizens actively participated in their own self-rule. But it meant anyone who wasn't a citizen could be made a slave. And so the critical thing when this idea of Republican freedoms discovered, rediscovered in the modern period and becomes sort of part of common political parlance is that it isn't a universal condition. Yeah, and, you you yeah. Uh, you cite Algernon Sidney, who's who's critiquing monarchical monarchic despotism in the 17th century very passionately using republican language, but he also says very clearly, quote, "My house, land, or estate, I may do what I please with them if I bring no damage on others." Interesting who is implied as others there. <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> this included, he wrote the quote, liberty to take servants and put them away at my pleasure. This won't do justice to the, the, the long sweep of history here, but but how how is republicanism shaping thinking in Europe and its settler colonies, particularly in North America, in, in the years leading up to the revolution? Good. So basically... What, what you're pointing to there is a really important moment because from about the 16th century up until the end of the 18th century, the idea that living in a republic means each person's independent and therefore shouldn't be under the arbitrary power of someone else yeah. is used primarily to criticize absolute monarchy and colonial rule. And so Sidney is very fam very famously deploys and is executed actually for his participation in a plot to overthrow the uh, Charles II. He's executed, um, and it's Sidney was a close friend of Locke. It's why Locke flees as he's worried that he might be in for it next. But they they're using this language to criticize absolute monarchy 
and divine right and all of these other ideas uh, justifying some form of arbitrary rule. But on like behalf of the landed aristocracy, right? Not so yes, much like the masses. The property-owning gentry, yeah. Yeah. right? So, And that's what he expresses. And so you can say that on the one hand, it's extremely important that they bring into being this discourse because they kind of do it, especially so unlike Locke. But they start arguing, well, everybody, naturally speaking, should be under their own power. No one has a right just by nature to rule over others. And that's a really important feature, feature especially of Locke's way of kind of blending this idea, idea of Republican freedom together with ideas of being naturally free and equal. But And then in the colonies, you have the same kind of idea about what's wrong with colonial government. It's arbitrary power. The people are not able to control the way in which fundamental decisions are made in the metropole. And that's why originally the colonists want representation in parliament because representation in parliament is understood as the primary mechanism whereby the people make laws that rule them and therefore now they're under their own power. But when they're denied that, then they say, well, no, well, then we want independent, we want our freedom. The only way to have our freedom is not to be under the arbitrary rule of a colonial government. But importantly, this went hand in hand with the desire for political independence by this group of people went hand in hand with wanting to preserve their ab ability to socially dominate various other groups and classes. And Sidney expresses that quite well. Locke does the same in these little passages where he talks about having property rights in the turf that my servant has cut. A very famous little line in chapter five of the second treatise. And so on the one hand, they're announcing this idea, no one has a right to arbitrarily, arbitrarily rule me. They are dominating me when they do this. I should be under my own power. Therefore, we want political independence and self-rule. But that argument against political slavery, right. absolute monarchy and colonial government, is at the same time for them a part of an argument for how to preserve their rights of private domination. It's not an argument against, uh, against slavery in and of itself. The complaint is we are being treated like slaves, which we are not, or we are being treated right. sort of like the indigenous people of this country when we're actually, we are, we are equal subjects of, of the crown, not, not conquered people. We're being treated like slaves. We shouldn't be treated like slaves. Only people who are eligible for slavery should be treated like slaves. It's right. certainly the view of some people. Not Locke, I should say. Yeah. Well, Locke's a complicated story. But, but a lot of the revolutionary generation. Exactly. I mean, it, there's, it's certainly the case that um, the southern states, the southern colonies start making these arguments when they, once it looks like the crown and parliament are going to start giving rights to slaves. The Somerset ruling in 1773 or 4 is a big deal to them because it says— Which is a bit of a hyperbolic reaction because it's just one ruling. It's not— It is, but it means that it's a classic conflict between a colony and the metropole. The metropole wants to have everybody under their legal control and recognize their legal status, whereas the settlers thought, no, we set the terms of our own rule. So the big shift then between the 18th century and the 19th century, which is the bulk of my book, the 19th century, is when— people start feeling that this is a deep paradox, that there's a paradox of slavery and freedom, that on the one hand, there is the idea that everybody, that, that the idea of Republican freedom is a universal ideal, that everybody is equal and therefore everybody has an equal claim to being independent from each other person. So that's one claim that kind of gets going at the late at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century. But then this other idea that for some to be free, other must be dependent. And this wasn't just a kind of free-floating idea. 
It was deeply linked to the way in which labor was organized, which is all previous economies had been based on slave labor. And the thought was, if you're someone who's eligible for freedom, you need to be independent. But that condition of material independence, uh, especially for those who needed the leisure to kind of cultivate themselves and participate in politics, was only made possible by somebody else doing the labor that sets you free from that work. And, um, and Thomas Jefferson articulated this at some length. Yes. I mean, he said a lot of different contradictory things about this, but he certainly, and, and in his case, he said he's. Well, at contradictory his, conditions require contradictory yes. ideologies. It's I a, no, he's a perfect expression of that idea that sort of, that he expresses the contradiction of it on the one hand and announces, you know, the universal rights of man and belief that all men are naturally free and equal, but then also makes racial claims about the natural racial inferiority of black people. And what was interesting about the what happens in the 19th century is that on the one hand, the defenders of slavery openly embrace this idea. They say, yes, we are the classical Republicans. We believe in self-government. That's only possible if some are made slaves because they do all of the work that makes it possible for the citizens to do the activity of citizens. Because you need leisure time and to exactly. have the leisure time to ref yes. critically reflect and and rule, you can't be doing work. Someone else has to be doing that. That's right. So what happens, though, over this period is there emerges the counterargument at different levels. And one of them is that actually there's nothing, there's nothing inherently bad about labor, that actually doing working under your own power helps develop those capacities you need as an independent will participating in politics, and that actually it's the decadence and therefore dependence of the slave owner on slave that makes them a bad citizen attracted only to their particular interests rather than the general interests that a citizen should be concerned with and actually makes it impossible for there to be general interests because they create this kind of divided society. And so people start thinking that well, the way to overcome the paradox of slavery is not to embrace slavery, but to actually overthrow it. The institution of slavery is incompatible with republican freedom because you can only really have a free republic where everybody enjoys the same condition of material independence. And there's nobody who's developed the habits of dominating others, whereas slave owners, they've developed the habit of wanting to dominate and impose their will on others, take as much land as they can, even if that leaves others with almost no land to work on. And this is originally expressed in a kind of independent proprietor ideal, which is sort of familiar in American discourse, it's but which agrarian. is it's agrarian or sort of the small craftsman who owns his tools, has a shop, maybe a few you know apprentices who go off and become their own craftsmen. But it means that what it means to control your labor is to have individual ownership of some piece of the means of production, usually land at this point, since it's still so agrarian, that you work for yourself and that you that that you use to maintain yourself economically. It's already capitalist agriculture. You're still part of global markets, but you're still independent because you do the work under your own power. And the thought, at least implicitly, is that this is universalizable. And at its most radical edge, shows up in certain figures like George Henry Evans, the Young Americans. This is an, still an abolitionist and anti-colonial view. Now, it, sometimes it's committed to colonial expansion, but it's abolitionist and anti-colonial because 
they saw the massive latifundias of the slave owners as threats to everybody's independence because they wanted a lot more land than they needed and took it from others. And because they saw colonial expansion as, as a way of diverting attention away from the massively accumulating property holdings of the wealthy class in the East. And so what they wanted was just existing property redistributed to everybody on an equal basis regardless of race so that they could be independent. And that's sort of the most radical form, emancipatory form that this movement takes prior to the Civil War and it leads to labor republicanism, which – we haven't gotten to yet. Which we'll get to. Yeah. But for, but first, I just want to, to pause and ask why it was that the coexistence of liberty and slavery becomes a paradox or a problem. Because you write that it it wasn't at all for most of republicanism's history. So what, what was it about this, this new context in modernity? Why did, as you write, why did a presupposition turn into an opposition? I see. Good. Yeah. Why did a presupposition turn into opposition? Well, if we remember that the originally the way in which Republican freedom is defined is that it's the opposite of slavery and everybody knew what slavery was. Slavery just was as a legal matter to be subject to the will of another. Right. In alieni juris, I think is the Latin phrase from the Roman law or something. But it was the fundamental law of persons in Roman law. It meant that the slave was directly under the legal power, under the will of someone else, whereas to be free is to be under your own power. So originally the point is the free person knows what their condition of independence is in relation to the slave. So logically and formally, one kind of presupposes the other. But also as a material fact about these economies, it was understood that for there to be a class of kind of free workers in this economy, their freedom presupposed slavery not because they themselves enjoyed the benefits of slavery but that the ruling class, its position was not threatened by this new emancipation of and granting of citizenship to this larger class of poor citizens because they had an alternative source of labor that maintained their leisure and independence and dominance in society. Orlando Patterson's got – and Moses Finley have written really well about how this kind of class compromise that allowed for the creation of Athenian democracy and similarly the Roman republics. One pre – freedom presupposed slavery because it made possible for – it made the ruling class able to agree to freedom for a class of – what had formerly been poor dependent workers because their freedom, which made it possible for them not to be made subject to the will of these ruling classes, they didn't have to worry as much about the freedom of these new citizens because the large property owners could use the dependent labor of what was now a slave class. So freedom presupposed in that slightly complex way slavery. And that kind of reappears in the early modern period because nobody has any experience with any alternative – in any large society, there's no experience with any other way of organizing labor. I mean slavery just is the general human way of organizing labor for most of human his history, whether it's in the form of chattel slavery or serfdom or anything else. So what's distinctive about these republics is that there's a class of free workers inside this wider slave society. But what turns that presupposition into an opposition is a very modern idea. And the modern idea is that everybody is fundamentally politically and morally equal. And if you say that everybody is fundamentally morally and politically equal, sometimes expressed as we're all 
um, naturally free and equal or there are some fundamental human rights. Uh, there are different ways of expressing that idea. But what it means is that nobody is naturally a slave to anyone else. And therefore, all political ideas, if they're going to be consistent with this fundamental modern egalitarian idea, must be universalizable. They must be universalizable, which means they must apply to everyone. Everybody has to be able to be free in the Republican way. Otherwise, you have to abandon that ideal. And then you have a conflict between the way society is organized and the ideology of how society should be organized. But why does that come about? Is that a Protestant universalism thing or at least some quasi-secularized version of that in terms of, of natural law? I mean, it, this, the, the story of how people come to accept um, the idea that human beings are equal is really complicated. And <laughs> Just a small question. Some of, it <laughs> is, some of it is sort of – I think you know, people have said that it's a secularized Christian idea. You know, we're all – children of God, regardless of any kind of ethnic feature about us. And there's certainly something, that kind of idea of a universal human subjectivity that's the same across all space and, and time, which is there in Christianity. I think it's, you know, stated, it, it's certainly one source, but I think it's overstated as the real source. I think- That's what, how Nietzsche, Nietzsche would describe it, right? Yes, yeah. as a slave morality, though. Yeah. And, and, and in a way, Nietzsche's not entirely wrong, but I think he here might be right for the wrong reasons, which is what really leads the development of the, this idea is changes in material circumstances and actual political struggles by groups demanding their equality. So what happens is it's in these struggles then where people take up the ideas and you see it immediately. You know, Thomas Jefferson, yes, expresses it in this contradictory way. But his contemporaries, some of his contemporaries, including some free blacks at the time, challenge him and, and, and point this out and start, you know, there's a public war of, of letters and there's people making speeches saying, no, we should abolish slavery right away. If, if all men are truly free and equal, then they deserve equal rights. You can't have slavery. And Manisha Sinha's book, The Slave's Cause, is very good on this, actually showing that the, immediately the contradiction in this position is exposed and there's people who already start fighting and challenging and arguing against slavery on this basis. And even centuries earlier with peasant revolts all right. over right. Europe, if we're talking about sort of material conditions pushing right. the ideology <clears throat> rather than yep. the other And way so around. I think that the fundamental change in material conditions then is the rise of wage labor. And the fundamental changes of the sort of political struggles is the is workers, beginning with the American Revolution, start who who participate in these revolutionary activities and start thinking, well, since we were we were the foot soldiers of revolution, we must really be equal, and therefore we have equal rights to the things that make us free, like land, control over our own our, our own activity. And that's what sets in motion then I think the 19th century debate which shifts from um, criticizing so-called political slavery, absolute monarchy and colonial government to the social preconditions for and the social existence which is to say if we're supposed to be self-determining, we should be self-determining in all aspects of our life. We can't organize a truly free republic if it's based on slavery or any other form of dependent labor. And that is something that at first artisans and the sort of artisanal republicanism and later wage workers and industrial workers start seizing on and makes them start to think first slavery is wrong, but then that there might be something wrong also with industrial wage labor. Well, that's the next period I want to talk about, which is the working men's parties. 
the first of which was founded in 1827 Philadelphia. Another reason Philadelphia is a great city. Yes, fantastic. Uh, <laughs> There's also great monuments there to a number of these kinds of figures, actually. I, last time I was there, I saw them. Um, the, they declared that that workers are, as, as one of its, these are the words of one of its theorists, mm. the movement's theorists, mm. uh, Thomas Skidmore, as he yeah. put it, that workers are, quote, dependent, even for their very existence, upon the pleasure, the caprice, the tyranny of their bosses. How did antebellum critics of wage slavery and economic dependence more generally formulate a critique of systematic dependence that moved beyond the agrarian solution, which had had been and in many ways still was the the conventional uh, solution to to dependency? And in what sense was their critique Republican? given that they rejected the conventional Republican belief that those who worked were inherently unfit to govern. Right. So what emerges out of the, the revolution is the idea, well, here's one way to universalize Republican liberty is to turn everyone into their own self-sufficient farmer. That's the agrarian republicanism. And the thing is that by the 1820s, really as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, you start seeing bits of industrialization happening in these eastern cities like Philadelphia and New York and Boston, which is where these working men's parties crop up. And they are- and Pawtucket. And Pawtucket, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, should, I, I have to mention my local, the, yes, our local Pawtucket, which is a fantastic museum to these guys, actually. Um, uh, so so the, these workers in these new sort of factories- they're deeply committed to the Republican idea of freedom. And in that quotation you read where they talk about tyranny and caprice, that is, those are like the signature words of Republican freedom, right? Because if Republican freedom is not being under the arbitrary will of another, what it means is others can't just capriciously induce you to behave in some way or another. That is to say, they can't just decide based on some whim they have or caprice that you should work in this way rather than that way, or produce this thing rather than that way. They have to, and their decisions have to in some way be reflective of your will and be f controlled by your will. And that's the op that, so tyranny and caprice are these signature words for Republicans because it's not just about a moment in time, but about the way, the, the relationship, the structural relationship of power that the worker stands in, in relationship to the employer or the person who, the master, the whoever dominates you. And very importantly, that the boss could dictate the movement of your body right. over time throughout right. the workday, this kind of right. total domination. Right. I mean, so, well, this was the claim. I mean, this was the really novel claim first made by the working men, by the working men's parties is there had been centuries of people saying, these monarchs or colonial governors are tyrants. They're despots. They rule capriciously because they can just make any law they like and nobody can control what they do and they're this absolute arbitrary power and so we're all slaves to their will. Yeah. And then they take that very same idea and say, look, the modern economy is a, is a despotism and it's a despotism because the employer exercises the same power in a pretty intricate way right. over the workers in these manufacturing, in these factories and, and, and um, other workplaces that they control. And the relationship of power is structurally the same. That's what makes it a condition of what they call domination, is that one person depends for their living or their life on 
their employer, mm -hmm. which is why they have to kind of accept more or less the terms that the employer sets, you know, wages and conditions. But moreover, then in virtue of making this labor contract with the employer, the employer then gets to dictate everything about how that work is performed, regardless of what the worker likes or doesn't like. Worker could leave, but that doesn't change that when the worker is under the employer's power, he's under the employer's power. They're not equals co-controlling and co-determining how things are going to happen. So um, they see it as a pretty exquisite reproduction of domination or the master-slave relationship. It's also worth noting that the law that covered labor relations at the time was just master-servant law. So the law protected this. It wasn't just a material fact about the workplace. It just was the legal relationship they were in. So the, wor the working men's parties, um, the first ones founded in 1827 by William Hayton and then, 18, and then a year later, Thomas Skidmore is the leader of the New York Working Men's Party. And Hayton and Skidmore, some of the most radical of these, um, I, I think you could say early labor Republicans or artisan labor Republicans. And what makes them different from the agrarians is while like the agrarians, they're committed to the idea that you can only be free when you're under your own power, they don't think that the only way to understand independence is to, is to have each individual controlling their own piece of property and thereby controlling their own activity. They think it's possible to do that collectively so long as you apply the same principles to the state as you do to the workplace, namely self-government. So, so long as everybody um, sets it up in a way that they uh, participate in equally in the making of the fundamental rules of the workplace and in its governing, then they can be free in the same way that they're free only in a free state, as it were, in a, in a democratic self-governing state, um, which they called a republic. So later you'd get the formulation that we should have an, a people in industry just as we have a people in government. That was a common way of formulating the idea. Uh, and that radiates out in, in various ways to Latin America and Ireland, all over the place. That kind of formulation becomes quite common in the 19th century as a simple way of explaining why you can have Republican freedom in the workplace even when you don't have individual proprietors. And so this is, that's the important departure from the agrarians. We can have industry. We can have modern industry um, and all of its um, productivity and all of its sort of collectively organized labor without unfreedom because you can have worker cooperatives. And here they had to draw on new ideas um, coming out of sort of socialist circles uh, regarding the idea of cooperation. Uh, primarily, they were reading British figures, British cooperativists. Um, like Owens? Like like Owen. Oh, interesting. Owen and Hayton knew each other. So um, uh, Owen actually published William Hayton's pamphlets in England. And actually, William Hayton was more widely read in, in England than he was in the US because of Owen's influence. And Owen saw in it a real inspiration. It has to be said that people like Hayton and this other guy, Bilesby and Skidmore, were in some ways ahead of the... Owenite socialists because they argued for using the state to expropriate some property Whereas so that Owen people yeah. – Owenite socialism was more of a philanthropic That's scheme right. to right. ameliorate poverty outside of the system. Yes. I mean it was philanthropic and voluntarist. So the idea was ideally they also wanted these self-governing, cooperatively run socialist utopias. 
but really there's there's two distinctions. One is the early Owenite utopian socialist communities were just communities apart from general society. Right. They were meant to be almost entirely self-sustaining. They might sell some of their surplus on, but in some way the ideal of that model community was that it would enjoy a kind of republican freedom. It would be self-governing and it would have a shared division of labor and therefore everybody would be guaranteed basic you know, living plus their share of the luxuries and nobody would have to work too hard. But it achieved that apart from society. And the, and the, and the, the working men's parties absolutely rejected that. They thought this had to be a universal ideal realized throughout the economy and that all of these self-governing uh, workshops and so on should be interconnected in some within the structure of a democratic state. So that's the first difference that it's important to note and I think that ramifies through long tradition of socialism. Uh, and the second thing is the degree to which they thought that the – whether you're talking about workers' cooperatives or these intentional socialist communities, utopian communities, the degree to which they should be voluntarily formed by yeah. their participants or whether the state should be involved in guaranteeing the material conditions for everyone to form one of these. And Skidmore and Bilesby, especially Skidmore, were quite in favor of saying, look, current property is just illegitimately gotten. It's gotten by force and it's used to get some people under the power of others. Because if you have people who have no property, they're just – they become dependent and therefore unfree on the people who do. And so that property doesn't merit our recognition. It's not valid. It's illegitimate because the only legitimate function of property is to guarantee everybody's freedom. That's the only basis on which we should recognize property rights. And therefore, the state is justified in expropriating property and redistributing it in a way that allows people to form these workers' cooperatives. Now, it has to be said that the labor Republican tradition really went back and forth on the question of whether it was willing to coercively take property versus kind of voluntarily through acts of virtue by workers themselves some, somehow accumulate the property necessary to form those cooperatives. And we can, we can talk about that detail um, maybe, maybe later. But it's just important to note that – just to answer your question about the yeah. agrarians, the yeah. key difference is they're looking forward to an economy, an industrial economy that can be collectively managed at the level of the workshop and eventually also through the state. One thing that jumped out to me that I was surprised to read about the the Working Men's Party or or, or Workies as yes. they were known yeah. um, was that they really fervently embraced the labor theory of value as a scientific means to demonstrate their domination and exploitation. Yeah, I don't know if those are the yes. words they would use, but that's yeah. what they were trying that's, to demonstrate. Right. Why was this political economic tool so important? Why was why was the science use of science so important given that their condition of domination must have been obvious to them. Yeah. They were living it. Good. So I think the labor theory of value and its role in socialist theory is really misunderstood, especially because people think that Marx is a labor theorist of value in the same way these guys are and they're not or he's not and maybe later we can talk about Marx but it was an ulterior motive for writing this was to kind of point out the role that labor theory of value plays for certain kinds of socialists and labor republicans yeah. compared with Marx. So for these guys, the, what they do is they say, look, the value that we produce in our daily labor is much less than the value uh, that we take home in, uh, in pay. And by that, they generally, they generally mean that we spend – let's say 12 hours working, but the amount of stuff that we can buy 
represents maybe three or four hours of labor. And all of the profits, that's how the, the employer gets all these profits. Because what they accept is that labor is the source of all value. Labor creates value. And therefore, if somebody who isn't working is acquiring some of the value that's produced, they're doing it by taking it illegally from others. It's unjust exploitation in their hands. So part of this is they want to explain and give a moral criticism um, by appealing to kind of scientific authority because science and especially social science starts to have a kind of authority. But, but there's a further reason that's specific to wage labor, which is – it's very easy to see how the independent agrarian proprietor enjoys the full fruits of his labor, right? Because he owns all his property. He gets everything that he produces on it and then he sells it. And the only question of whether that person's being cheated is whether there's some manipulation on the market when they go and sell their products. But there were many who were saying actually wage laborers are free and they're free on Republican terms because before they make the contract, nobody may force them to work for anybody in particular. So unlike slaves, wage laborers are independent in the relevant sense. Nobody can force them to do anything for them. They're not arbitrarily under the power of anyone else. And these contracts are things they have consented to. And so there's no meaningful way in which they're being misused. And the role of the labor theory of value was to try and show very precisely the way in which they were in fact in the workplace being uh, put to use by someone else, being used by others against their will. And they felt – Basically like mathematically proving exactly. as they saw it that they were doing let's say, I don't know, 10, 12 hours right. of work but only getting paid for eight of them. Right. So they wanted to make this connection between the labor contract and the wages they agreed to, their propertylessness – and the profits that these employers enjoyed because people say your contract's free. And it's like, no, look, we're forced because of our propertylessness to accept whatever wage we can find on the market. And then because we need these jobs so much, we have to do as much work as the employer wants us to do under the conditions the employer sets. And then they get to take all this extra value that we've created. And so this is proof, not just that we're being exploited, yeah. But that we're unfree, that we're that we're dominated by the employer, which is what allows him to exploit us. So it's a science of exploitation because I think they can calculate it, and also because they have this kind of incipient awareness that the real dynamics of this new industrial capitalist order aren't transparent in the way that exchanges among independent proprietors are more transparent. Because the only thing that one has to look at is the nature of the sale between the farmer and the master craftsman. Whereas what goes on and how the workplace is organized is a bit of a it's a bit of a mystery, which is shown up by the fact that there's a kind of superficial plausibility to the claim that they were free when they were making the contract. Workies invoked wage slavery specifically as an analogy to existing chattel slavery. But were workies anti-chattel slavery or did they, because of conventional racism, see white wage slaves as the true slaves? Sort of the, the, a similar formulation as to the leaders of the American Revolution who would rebel against slavery because people who should not be slaves are being treated That's as right. such. So I think this issue has been pretty misunderstood and I think unfortunately we've been sort of badly misled by Rodiger's Wages of Whiteness. 
because that book looked in particular at these kinds of people, these northern wage workers objecting to wage slavery, and said, look, this is just a sort of heron-voke republicanism where you have white workers objecting to their enslavement because it's making them like the black slaves in the South. And they are invoking this kind of ethnic idea that white people shouldn't be enslaved, which was certainly persistent and widespread in the early kind of Anglo-American republic, which already made these distinctions. And so people have gotten the idea that the essence of this claim was really nothing more than or primarily this um, kind of racist worker claim for freedom. And I think that just badly overstates the truth of this. I mean, Thomas Skidmore clearly thinks and clearly says everybody should be free, uh, man and woman. He uses what we would now call politically incorrect terms, but it's pretty easy to see in context that it's a very egalitarian idea. He says red, white, brown, Everybody has the same claims, should be part of the same community, and everyone has the same amount of property. George Henry Evans. The claims the liberation of the support for the liberation of indigenous people yes. is particularly notable. Yeah, remarkable. I mean, support of indigenous people is true. George Henry, Evan, Henry Evans for a long period of his life, who again, who was against the Mexican-American War, thought that it was unjust uh, oppression of Mexicans and expansion against Native Americans. So there certainly was a strand of this kind of you shouldn't do to white people what you're doing to black people, but it's okay to do that. That was a strand, but I don't think it was the – I don't think the evidence supports that it was the primary strand. And I think there's even a number of people who end up somewhat resentfully in that position for the following reason, which is even some of the texts actually that I remember Rodiger reading, I think he, he somewhat sort of misreads, which is you have – these northern white workers making these statements about northern abolitionists in which they point out they walk by the man dying in the street next to them to go off to their abolitionist meeting. And Rodiger sometimes sees this as racist white worker criticizing abolitionism. But in many cases, that's not what's going on. Instead, what it is is an attempt to expose what they think is the moral hypocrisy of these bourgeois abolitionists. Of people like William Lloyd Garrison. Of people, I mean, w William Lloyd Garrison, I I'm persuaded by Manisha Sinha that he was more complicated, much more egalitarian than some of his statements suggest. But in important I, I, moments- I want to pause you and yeah. quote from one of his statements. Yeah. Quote, where the avenues to wealth, distinction, and supremacy are open to all, it must, in the nature of things- be full of inequalities. And then he says elsewhere, if workers didn't get, quote, their due proportion of power and influence, theirs is the fault. And then yes, you also right. cite William Jay, who, who yeah, drafted the American Anti-Slavery Society's Constitution, yeah. who argued that abolition would mean freed black people's entry into wage labor, right. which would be the end of exactly. oppression. Wage labor was free labor. Quote, but labor is no longer the badge of his servitude and the consummation of his misery. It is the evidence of his liberty, for it is voluntary. For the first time in his life, he is a party to a contract. So exactly. the, your argument, contra Rodiger, who, just to full disclosure listeners, I've not read, so <laughs> I, can't, I can't give an independent evaluation of his work, is that the workies are responding to sentiments like this. Exactly. From, from bourgeois abolitionists. Exactly. So what, when, when you see these criticisms of these bourgeois abolitionists like William Jay and you know, the very prominent members, mm -hmm. um, 
it is primarily been interpreted as evidence that they're just kind of racist. They think it's okay to enslave black people, not white people. I just think it's not the case. And this there's a very famous poem which Rodiger quotes and I think misquotes or misinterprets on this very thing is, is that they think that free wage labor is free labor. They're completely unwilling to recognize the um, the profound injustices and unfreedom of their own society and yet run around proclaiming their moral superiority in the name of freedom. So they, they're going to all these abolitionist meetings, say they love freedom, trying to prove how much they love freedom by being against slavery, but using then slavery to justify wage labor and including – and in particular, using slavery to justify wage labor and to claim that under wage labor conditions, everybody's poverty is their own fault because it's now their choice what they're going to do, which is why they walk by the man dying on the street on their way to the abolitionist meeting. And so what a lot of these workers were doing was a kind of ironic critique. I mean, sometimes, you sometimes the surface meaning of what they're saying starts to look racist, but it isn't the point. The point is to criticize the moral hypocrisy and dishonesty of, of many of these bourgeois abolitionists who are really using slavery as an occasion to announce their moral superiority without themselves having to face the challenge of their own claims about freedom where it directly affects them in their own society and where they'd actually have to give up some of their property and recognize the equality of wage workers and the, and the fundamental unfreedom of the condition of the wage worker in their own cities and neighborhoods. So I think that's a very important part of of the story. But also it's just true that many of these were just abolitionists and they wrote abolition into their programs. They had their own separate, less famous, less well-researched abolitionist meetings. Part of it was also that to them, abolition was part of the broader free labor program. So they don't immediately register as abolitionists because they didn't go to these abolitionist meetings. <laughs> Right, which were anyhow controlled by more prominent, wealthier members of society in certain certain towns and so on. Including people like Moses Brown here in Providence, whose yeah. manufacturing right. industries right. used cotton picked cotton. by enslaved exactly. black people in the South. Exactly. No, my colleague Seth Rock Rockman's written about this uh, here at Brown and done a lot of good work kind of uncovering that stuff, uh, a number of other people. Um, so uh, I think the whole story is is still not well understood. Manisha Sinha's book, to name her again, is very good on correcting some of this. But but anyway, so I think that that's the real story and complexity about the relationship, about the significance of the concept wage slavery, yeah. is that I think it's the weight of it was really about saying free labor is not the same as wage labor, but the current struggle over slavery is potentially making it seem like it is. Is it is it possible that one way that Rodinger's analysis is is wrong is more in terms of of emphasis in the yeah. sense of like you look at like on the one hand you look at people who are you know workies and radical abolitionists yeah. as well but then you also have situations like the Door Rebellion yeah. which are in Rhode, here in Rhode Island yeah. which are just sort of textbook white republicanism that that after a bit of a fight over it, do become ultimately premised on exclusion. Yeah, I mean, the Door Rebellion is its own difficult thing because it was a product of the industrial class not wanting to recognize the results of a refer of basically of a referendum. Yeah. Not unlike Brexit, it has yeah. to be said, engineer trying to engineer. They basically engineered a, new, a second a new result because they didn't want to give they didn't want to expand the franchise to the property list, 
and they kind of agree in the end to on on a racist compromise. The problem is that it's true in one way that the Rodiger and th that general line is a problem of emphasis. So I've, the wages of whiteness I find quite one-sided, but also the political implication that's drawn. I think wages of whiteness was writ written sort of in the context of Reagan de uh, Democrats and the white working class voting for Reagan. And it was a sort of, here's why you can't ever hope to win over these people. And it was trying to read, it read that I think unfairly all the way back and got the wrong political message. You shouldn't expect the real emancipatory ideas of freedom to come out of or take hold with this crowd. And I think it just fundamentally misunderstands what was going on there. Also misses the fact that these workies and these groups often got quite repressed. And the reason that they had trouble winning their ideas was that they either got outmaneuvered by more moderate voices. Uh, Skidmore got muscled out by Robert Dale Owen, Robert Owen's son, uh, 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 as leader of the who, – who is more conservative. Small world. A very small world, yeah, who then becomes a Democrat and a leading abolitionist in the North. But anyway, it's, it's – you know, that there's just external forces that limit the more radical tendencies and – yeah. One other thought on Garrison is that on the first reading, most immediately wrong – with him insisting on defining chattel slavery as 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 uniquely evil and not and not comparable to yeah. anything else is well on one level you can you, you can sort of like sympathize with why one would want to do that in the face of chattel slavery but the first thing that what's most obviously wrong is just dismissing the condition of the working class that he's surrounded by but perhaps even more perniciously and revealingly wrong about what he's arguing is that that sort of thinking helps lay the groundwork for the normalization right. of black poverty from the end of the Civil War through today. Yep, right. No, that's a very important point. And I think this is what's powerful and, ex and appealing about the Republican idea of freedom is that the Republican idea of freedom is that anywhere where you're in a structural relationship of subjection to someone where they have, in a virtue of the structure of your relationship with them, a power to interfere arbitrarily with your life. That's a condition of unfreedom. What's appealing about that is it allows us to see chattel slavery as one of the worst forms in a spectrum of forms of unfreedom. And so it, will, it links slavery, chattel slavery, with other forms of servitude. And gives you a way then of both recognizing and acknowledging what's distinctive and especially horrendous with about chattel slavery. And it obviously was especially terrible um, without forcing one to acknowledge what's especially awful about chattel slavery in a way that then requires you to somehow dismiss all other claims uh, of unfreedom as somehow a threat. And that everything that's not chattel slavery is – is okay. It's somehow okay or just or not so good. bad. Right. And so I think this is, you know, sometimes people worry, well, the problem with the wage slavery claim is that it's led to conceptual inflation and you lose what's specific and terrible about slavery. And certainly there were some people who, who did that. But um, the more common thing to say was that chattel slavery is especially bad. But if we want to know what will make the chattel slave free, what is it that really will make them free? it will reveal to us the way in which many other people 
also don't enjoy those conditions, are therefore dependent and therefore unfree, and also have a claim. And this is what was so radical and dangerous about the Civil War. This is what was so radical and dangerous about the Civil War, was that it reawakened this point and raised the claim, well, what is, if the slave is unfree, what does their freedom mean? And it was a really open question by the end of the Civil War whether it was just a matter of whether they could make labor contracts or whether they had to enjoy that underlying Republican idea, condition of independence. The famous phrase, 40 acres and a mule, which was the kind of claim right of reconstruction for all slaves, was the rearticulation of that agrarian Republican idea. Right. And it was taken from 40 acres is what someone needs to be um, self-sufficient. And they also need a mule to be able to farm it. So it was actually the Republican idea that gave teeth to the view that emancipating, abolishing slavery was insufficient to emancipate slaves. This debate over wage slavery as something, a form of domination that can be understood in relation to an analysis of chattel slavery reminds me of the debate currently between the Jewish left and right over the correctness of looking to the the Holocaust as an extreme exemplar of right-wing eliminationist racist forms of domination or whether it's something that has to be placed outside of history and that can't right. can't be compared to anything else because right. it's special and right. the Jewish left has been very clear in saying no right. like we the point of never again is to is to learn know what from the that. bad signs are. Yeah, yeah concentrate. The first concentration camps were not organized for the purposes of extermination. Right. Uh, and, and as a even more aside, aside, it's yeah. interesting that in the U.S., one of the first uses of concentration camps was to isolate and arbitrarily imprison radical labor organizers in the IWW who were themselves sort of descendants from the radical edge of the Knights. And so in San Diego, for instance, they set up these bullpens during the free speech fights there, which were literally – they were just pens that you would normally keep a bull in. And there were these wire um, pens that were concentration camps. And they just arrested all these wobblies, took them outside of town and stuck them there and left them there for a while until they decided what to do with them. And so they just concentrated them all in this little camp. Uh, I mean, it's a very effective way of stripping an, an individual of their of their social standing entirely, because they're now in this sort of uh, suspended legal space, completely unfree to move anywhere, and sort of out of people's sight. So it's it's an instrument for social control when the right. when the repressive instruments of the state exceed what the law can even authorize. Sort of break the sign of of a, of a society's breakdown. I want to talk about Lincoln briefly because yeah. he seems like the sort of like intermediary yeah. moment, which is both like simultaneously revolutionary and conservative. It's conservative in the sense that he thinks that free – he has this agrarian conception yeah. still that conceives of freedom as free labor, which was defined as both not slavery – but also not chattel slavery, but also not wage labor, something along the lines of what the National Reform Association of yeah. the 1840s and 50s, which was the big kind of agrarian Republican right. group at the time, was pushing for. Lincoln believed that a person should only encounter wage labor as as a brief stint to make the money necessary to to buy the tools and land they need to become truly economically independent. So what's conservative about that is that there's no there's no room for 
radical labor, wage labor politics there. But you write that Lincoln did flip, you know, like the workies and others, this conventional understanding of Republican liberty on its head by insisting that independence could not be rooted in this elite leisure right. made possible by other people's right. dependent la- labor. The slave right. owner was no longer the the ideal. Right. But la- but wage labor was still an evil to be good avoided. What why for Lincoln did slavery and wage labor like threaten free labor? And just to sort of like set the context for this moment of transition, how did how did this conception reflect Lincoln's time? And to what extent was it very much already inadequate to right. his time? So it's so it's important to remember that these thoughts we have from Lincoln about wage labor and land and so on come from the speech he gives in Wisconsin to farmers. And it's a political speech, so to the degree that it really fully expresses all of Lincoln's views about labor, one has to take with a bit of a grain of salt. It's in some ways a, more purely his reflecting back the way in which this agrarian Republican view intersects with the growth of wage labor. And so what he says is, I forget the exact quotation, but it's something like, the prudent penniless worker labors for wages for a while, earns enough to be able to go off and work for himself. And so it's a famous quotation because people think it's an expression of our modern idea of social mobility, but it isn't because his idea is everybody should be able in their own lifetime to be able to work hard enough that they can spend most of their working life as their own independent proprietor. It's not the story about intergenerational social mobility where like the immigrant family comes and their children go to Yale and become a doctor and then they have kids and those kids become artists or something like that, you know, like this kind of weird. It's not, although it gets quoted about it, it's not. It's actually about a, a much stricter view about the kind of opportunities everybody should have, which is that wage labor is bad. And it's bad because it is dependent labor. The wage laborer does not work under his own power, does not through his own activity discover his own abilities and his own thinking because the wage laborer has to do the work that the boss requires of him. But it's permissible so long as it's a temporary condition. Now, it can only be a temporary condition if two things are true. One is the wage laborer can earn enough to be able to save enough to go buy some land and become his own boss. And two, if there's enough land available for those wage laborers to buy at reasonable prices, let's say. And that's supposed to be the point of the National Reform Association is to make public land available on this basis uh, in small plots of land to workers rather than as big plots of land for land speculators to buy up or railroads. So that's the way in which Lincoln is trying to kind of reimagine the growing mass of wage laborers is nonetheless consistent with a free republic. Wage labor should not be a permanent condition. However, he gets in another little premise which becomes – even makes the whole situation much more ambiguous, which is he says to the degree that people remain in wage labor their whole life, it's because they failed to work hard enough. It's their lack of virtue. And so it's very ambiguous in the – in his articulation, exactly what it's up to the state to make sure exists such that anyone who works hard enough, you know, takes those necessary steps could actually be able to become independent. It's like maybe like a conception today that would be like a minimum wage jobs are for 
summer jobs for for teenagers yes. or after school. Yeah. And if you if you find yourself still working <clears throat> at one, yeah, as it's a grown person, right. that's your right. fault. So it'd be something. Yeah. Right. So like, so long as wages are high enough, and their and the means of production are cheap enough then anyone who's still at wage work after five years of work in there by age 30 is there because they just failed to save. They spent all their money, they weren't thinking about the future, and so it's their fault. And therefore, they kind of deserve their dependence. So it's still a claim that wage labor is unfree. It's dependence. You're not working under your own power. But he's trying to find some way of explaining why increasingly wage laborers become a permanent condition for many people. And it waffles between, well, the government's failed to make an alternative available to people such that they could enjoy real Republican freedom versus how much is, well, it's because they failed to take advantage of the opportunities available to them to rise up out of the wage laborer class. Uh, and it's just a very ambiguous, we, we can't say for sure. I think you just can't say for sure. I mean, Foner said in his Free Soil, Free Men, Free Labor that he thought this was sort of clearly the expression of the bourgeois ideal of equal opportunity. Uh, I think it's a little ambiguous because it it holds out the thought that it, we can only think people are responsible for their condition in the labor market if there really are non-competitive opportunities for everyone who works hard enough to get out. And if your analysis of the wage labor system is those opportunities aren't there because there's only like 10,000 acres of land, but there's 1 million workers, then if that's the case, then a million workers, no matter how hard they worked, couldn't get hold of enough land to live as independent workers, and then you'd need some other analysis. You write that that earlier Republicans prior to Lincoln hadn't paid, and prior to the workies, I guess, hadn't paid much attention to wage labor because, quote, it was based on a social assumption that wage labor would never be more than a passing, marginal, yeah. or seasonal fact of the economy, rather than a central and permanent way of organizing economic production. That assumption was based on a further belief about property and labor. Republicans had assumed that there would always be enough land such that a citizen could acquire adequate property right. to be independent. The new economy then rendered agrarianism a clearly impossible solution. It was probably always an impossible solution, but it rendered that very clear. Can the rise of wage labor then be seen alongside the closing frontiers end of the promise of endless yeah. land? Can that be seen as a crisis in settler colonialism of sorts? Because sure. after all, the National Reform Association pushed the Homestead Act, a yes. major piece right. of law that facilitated westward expansion. Right. Yes, the National Reform Association is its own complicated story about radical workies and people who were against colonial expansion but wanted existing public lands opened up and then others who were okay with expropriating those in the West, the Native Americans primarily, to make it available to true Republican citizens. And it's you know just a – like many of these social movements, a contradictory kind of um, thing. Uh, actually, a grad student here at Brown has been doing some research into what they really thought, Sean Monaghan, and has found some very interesting, more anti-colonial tendencies among them than has been appreciated. And Mark Laus wrote very well about this too. But I think that – so part – it's definitely true that once you get sort of mass industry 
by the 1840s and 50s in the East, and then over the course of the Civil War, kind of through moving into the urban pockets of the Midwest. I think it's pretty clear to people that um, the question now is not, can wage labor be something that's kind of temporary, but is it consistent with Republican freedom at all? And as you say, that is a crisis for settler colonialism because it, it, uh, or, or the, the, kind of the, the degree to which that settler colonial ideal was part of the self-understanding of freedom in that nation state because it meant there was never going to be enough land. It was just no longer plausible even to those unwilling to face the facts in the 1850s. It's just no longer going to be plausible that everyone could in principle go become their own self-sufficient farmer. And so that – And then by the late 19th century, it was very clear that that land was being consolidated under corporate control anyways. I mean, it was uh, – yeah. I mean by the – even you know the building of the railroads already opened everybody's eyes. The fact that actually large corporations and financial speculators owned a lot of this land and that, that, it, that the fight to open it up, which was a partial victory of the Morrill Land Grant Act and so on during the Civil War, was still ultimately by the – after the end of the Civil War had been lost. And so I think the crisis is more directly of a certain way of thinking about independence, I think, than settler colonialism per se because a lot of these figures had already challenged many of the racial assumptions and ethnic views of settler colonialism earlier than that. But what happens after the civil starts, – starts to happen after the Civil War is that you get two sides making competing claims about what this new universal non-exclusionary view of freedom looked like um, because Reconstruction opens up this kind of radical prospect that emancipation is more than abolition. It also means massive redistribution of property and everybody being independent. In the south, it's you know newly freed slaves now owning land. In the north, it might mean more forming of these cooperatives. In the west, it means you know redistributing big – private holdings to citizens and so on. And so what comes out of the fight over slavery is is not just or I think even less just the reassertion of white supremacy per se in the form of settler colonialism but also the attempt to reinterpret freedom as wage labor. Say, no, look, slaves are free just as the Mexican workers and Chinese workers on the West Coast are free, just as white workers are free just so long as – they can make a labor contract because when they can make a labor contract, they're under their own power. They are legally free and that legal freedom is enough to ensure that they're independent in the way that republicanism acquires. And then they can make whatever contract they want. In fact, a worker's labor power is a property right that adheres to the worker. That's right. So it's important then that what they say is nobody is a slave just so long as they own their own labor power and can use it as they see fit. And then there's some really important legal cases that kind of slowly kind of develop this into kind of laissez-faire republicanism. Right. And they'll say things like, well, Mexican peonage is unacceptable because it reduces the Mexican to the equivalent of a black slave pre-Civil War. So Republican freedom requires us to get rid of that. But any further claim that the wage laborer is unfree involves a radical overextension of the 13th Amendment, abolishing involuntary servitude. It involves uh, an unreasonable 
interpretation of wage labor. Everyone can be free regardless of race just so long as they're owners of their own labor power and can sell it in whatever labor contract they want. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century by Eric Olin Wright, with an afterword by Michael Burroway. Capitalism has transformed the world and increased our productivity, but at the cost of enormous human suffering. Our shared values, equality and fairness, democracy and freedom, community and solidarity can provide both the basis for a critique of capitalism and help to guide us toward a socialist and democratic society. Eric Olin Wright has distilled decades of work into this concise and tightly argued manifesto. Analyzing the varieties of anti-capitalism, assessing different strategic approaches, and laying the foundations for society dedicated to human flourishing. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century is an urgent and powerful argument for socialism and an unparalleled guide to help us get there. Another world is possible. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century by Eric Olin Wright with an afterword by Michael Burroy. Out now from Verso Books. What you call laissez-faire republicanism looks a lot like what we might today see as a thoroughly liberal yeah. ideology. Yeah. But but you argue that it was actually a remaking of republican yeah. ideology and that every, everyone or almost everyone was sort of operating in the republican framework and developing very different interpretations of it in this moment of crisis how did laissez-faire republicans transform republican ideology to conceive of wage labor as free since early republicans really because labor republicans had a more conventional view here that labor that wage labor was unfree because early republicans from cicero through jefferson and lincoln they'd almost always considered wage labor to be unfree. I mean, yes, this is the puzzle about wage labor is prior to the 19th century, to the degree anyone had anything to say about wage labor, it was very much in passing. And that's because it was not even close to the dominant way of organizing It's a marginal phenomenon. It's marginal. Most people who did wage labor did it on a kind of occasional basis. They might be poor farmers who also worked for wages to supplement their farming income. You either had farmers or tenants or you had slaves of various sorts like serfs or chattel slaves. And so it wasn't directly thematized. You know, it wasn't directly the object of extensive thinking about whether it fit more as a category of dependent labor or as a form of free labor. And it couldn't really be because what wage labor meant in those economies was quite different from an economy primarily organized around wage labor, where you have a developed labor market populated primarily by propertyless workers. I think wage labor 
in various parts of the economy outside like domestic service and many pre-modern economies was much more, as I say, occasional and therefore kind of distasteful, but marginal and also as it were occasional. It wasn't, it was a temporary condition for somebody, maybe seasonal or something like that. So, or transitional. So what wage labor even looks like and how to think about the power relations involved really changes when it becomes the dominant way of organizing labor, the permanent condition of those who do it, and organized across cities and nation states and really almost the entire globe. Because then the forces that people are subject to really look different. And so on the one hand, to claim that it's dominated, that the workers are dominated, starts to look a little different when what you're talking about is large factories run by bosses who have absolute legal control over how that work's done and who exercise that power according to the dictates of a market rather than the dictates of a local lord who needs some extra seasonal labor on his land or you know, to meet seasonal demands from a clothier or something like that. So the way in which that power is exercised, the way in which it's organized and the sheer um, quantity of people subject to it changes so much that you it's very hard to draw on pre-modern thinking about it to really know. So it requires – that's why you have this new science of exploitation like through the labor theory of value. And it's why it's up to the labor republicans to really describe these conditions. As I sort of mention in the book, in order to criticize the laissez-faire republicans, they have to point people's attention away from just the labor contract, although they think that's importantly a dominated one because of the propertylessness of the worker. They, they're kind of forced to accept terms. They really don't have much control over the terms under which people sell their labor because they have to to survive. But even more than that, they point people into how the internal organization of the factory looks, how wage laborers actually organize as a daily activity. And that's what matters. That's where they really talk about the capriciousness and whim and arbitrary power of the employer. They identify pervasive domination kind of before yeah. the contract, at the moment yeah. of the contract, and, and during the work process itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say, if there was one thing I wish I'd said more about in the book, I think because I sort of thought it was obvious and less original, but now I regret, is that there's really a fourth aspect. So before the contract, it's the fact that some people are forced to work on whatever terms they can find, while others are not already sets up a kind of structural relationship of domination. All those propertyless people are dependent upon some employer or another. And that's the first moment where they say, look, this is dependence and it's a whole class of people dependent. And you all think if you read you know, classical Republican texts, this class doesn't exist so they don't have anything to say about this fact. But this is the fundamental fact of our society and it's what – I think you discuss that. Organize it. Yes. So, so I'm just saying I discuss that and then I discuss how the contract's made and then I discuss how work is organized and how people are subject to the whim. But there's a fourth dimension to it, which I wish I'd mentioned a little bit more, which is that in virtue of being subject directly to the will of the employer, they also were concerned that this gave the employer control over their political activities. Right. It wasn't just that the employers, because of their wealth, were able to corrupt the political regime, which I talk about as also a loss of freedom, loss of political freedom. But that because they were so dependent on their employers, their employers could really induce them to behave politically in ways that they didn't want to and which were inconsistent with a free republic in which every citizen 
acts politically according to their own will. Which was ironically shared some formal similarities to the arguments made by early 19th century elites arguing against enfranchising white male workers. Exactly, exactly. And they said, yeah, fair point. And so let's end the economic domination. A longstanding view. We should disenfranchise those who don't have their own will. Dependent workers like wage workers, women and Native Americans and others who sort of constitutively because of racial difference, so it was claimed, didn't have the – were incapable of sort of uh, rational will formation. So what they argue instead is, no, make us all independent. Uh, uh, that's why we need workers. Co- that's why you need a producer's cooperative. You need to abolish these employers because they're the real threat. Um, and it has – the reason I wish I'd made a little bit more of that in the book is that I think it has a lot of valence today, especially yeah. in relation to a lot of these sort of contemporary studies by people like Alexander Hertel Fernandez who um, document the ways in which employers actually find it's much more effective um, for them – to try to influence politics by influencing the political activities of their employees huh. and using their political power, their their economic power over their employees to engage in political behavior that they don't want to, rather than just give money or engage in lobbying. That there's many employers who just do it that way. And so I think there's a still a strong continuity in this particular problem with the 19th century. And somewhat more more diffusely, but perhaps even more powerfully, is the way that the very hegemony that kind of ideological hegemony that results from pervasive workplace domination yeah. inculcates right. certain pro-boss political sentiments without the boss needing to say vote yeah. for x or or y i mean i to, to me what's interesting is part of the reason i really wanted to write this book is when you see all of these workers rebelling against the idea that the boss just has some kind of right to control them and rule over them it's quite inspiring because you see these people in their daily life demanding to be self-determining, to be under their own power. And I think in contrast to the present, it's kind of uh, interesting. It's eye-opening because I think the power of bosses has been much more naturalized in the present. I think at the individual level, levels we don't see, there's a lot of passive resistance and foot dragging and resentment against that kind of power. But it's much less articulated at the level of public culture and mass activity to say, look, this is unacceptable. People should not be just subject to these arbitrary random commands of bosses to do whatever. And they have immense amounts of power. People don't always really appreciate just how much power bosses have to control activity as a matter of law and just material fact. But they do and there's less organized resistance to it. It's there and actually a lot of the recent strikes we've seen, people haven't quite noticed it. But they always contain a worker's control element. The Verizon strike, for instance, a big part of that was in ending various disciplinary procedures um, that Verizon used against its workers. Um, The Seattle teacher strike involved uh, controlling and ending certain racially discriminatory practices in school discipline. Uh, Seattle? Seattle. That that was a couple of years ago. Marriott hotel workers demanded the creation of certain procedures for dealing with sexual harassment. So these and these are all demands for control over how their work is done. Right. Um, And people don't always realize how big a part that is. Part because the law makes it hard for them to make that explicitly the theme. This was a big value to these workers, I think, of the Republican theory of freedom is to say, look. My activity shouldn't just be in the arbitrary under the arbitrary control of someone else. I should control 
the terms under which I work. And if I'm cooperating with people in my work and modern labor is fundamentally cooperative, then we should set up that cooperation in the one way we know of making that consistent with self-government, which is everyone has equal control over that activity. That's what I want to talk about next is this idea of cooperation, which was so central for labor Republicans and for the Knights of Labor. They believed, as you just mentioned, that combination was a basic feature of modern economics, but that the system as it existed combined the few against the many, and that that had to be overturned and replaced with a system of cooperation that combined the many. Not even combined the many against the few, kind of just eliminates the few. Yeah. um, Capital and labor become one. They say stuff like that a lot. Yep. The, the idea as you refer, of cooperation, as you've referred to before, had gained attention in the early 19th century in different ways. There was the, the utopian socialist Robert Owens, who yep. we've talked about. There was the Workingmen's Party, which are different conceptions. The Owenites saw it as something uh, taking place outside of society. The Workingmen's Parties believed that you had to transform society. For the Knights... What was cooperation yes. and the cooperative commonwealth yeah. as a form of both economic and political governance? Yeah. And, and how did that draw on and depart from these prior conceptions? Yeah. So the Knights of Labor are really the ones who make this idea of the cooperative commonwealth uh, a major idea. And it's a term that outlives the Knights and reverberates, reverberates through various descendants like the Wobblies and other socialist parties and organizations. Uh, Socialist Party uh, invokes it for a time, Debs. And what it is is a vision of a national economy and in principle an international economy. I mean there were knights in New Zealand and Canada and stuff and Belgium. But primarily it's the first vision of a national economy that is democratic as a form of national state and in which each workplace is organized and run by the workers themselves. So where self-government is applied at every major level of society. So I mean, one way they look at it is they say, look, we've already eliminated the few at the level of the democratic state because in principle, at least formally, we've said everybody is politically equal. We're all just citizens and we only have our political claims and our political power qua citizens, not in proportion to our property or in relation to our race or gender. I mean, the gender thing, they, you know, they, they, there were suffragettes in the Knights. Most of the famous suffragettes who'd been alive and adults at the time were members of the Knights at some point. I wouldn't say that they were like super gender progressive, although for their time, they were better than most anyone else. But the point is already at the level of the state, We said you just get political rights as a citizen, which is why everyone's equal. But then in society, we still have this dramatic inequality of power, which allows some to dominate others. And so we should apply the same principle. We should eliminate classes the same way we've done it in in the democratic state. And we do that by abolishing wage labor and substituting cooperation, therefore. And that's what creates the cooperative commonwealth. We can't really realize the democratic potential of the state until the entire economy is an interconnected network of producer cooperatives 
And that's what the cooperative commonwealth then would be, which is a national state that's maybe socialized those few areas of the economy that can't be run as competitive producers' cooperatives like utilities or large public infrastructure like railroads. But that then most of the economic activity takes place in these various producer cooperatives selling their collectively produced goods on the market, on a consumer market. How did labor republicans envision freedom and independence under this ideal system of cooperation, since that system would not only operate at the level of the firm, but as a total system at the national and even, mm. potentially, maybe just more utopianly, international yeah. level, and that necessarily required interdependence That's right. yeah. and, and thus solidarity, given... Republican independence's individualism historically prior yeah. to this yeah. and insistence on the value of independence, yeah. how did they conceive of solidarity as extending beyond narrow self-interest, what you call selfishness? Mm. Yes. So it's important that individualism as such doesn't always lead to individualistic politics. In, in the hands of these labor republicans, individualism was primarily the claim that each individual had a right to their own freedom, which to them naturally led to any collective forms of life should be subject to the principle of popular sovereignty. Everybody is in it together. We're all subject to the same rules that we make for ourselves. That's why they thought there should be a people in government and a people in industry. That's what they meant. That's what it meant. To be an individualist was to believe in democracy. And I think it's important to, to recognize that because people sometimes think that any kind of individualism is inherently hostile to any kind of solidarity, any kind of emancipatory solidarity or collective action. But that's not the case, actually. The, the, the way in which – in a way, there was a certain way in which – Individualism was necessary to explaining how all of these groups that were otherwise different in their social social particularity, different because they were different genders or different ethnicities or different races as it was understood at the time, were nonetheless fundamentally the same. And they were fundamentally the same and therefore had shared interests because they were individuals who had the capacity for freedom. And they were individuals first and foremost. And so their solidarity extended to all other individuals struggling for the same kind of freedom, at least in principle. Right? That's, I think, what gave them such a kind of mass appeal um, and such a at least for a brief time, such a, a radical character, especially for the 19th century, where you didn't see much of this kind of transracial and across genders organizing. Um, so, and, and and then with respect to the international sphere then, uh, I mean, this is why they had chapters abroad and recognized that in some ways the fate of all workers everywhere were in principle the same. And they had certain exchanges. I think that the kind of most important thing for them at that time, I mean, there's a way in which the American nation state was pretty new at that point. It was really formed by the Civil War. Most politics prior to that happened at the state level. And so to them, I think the first purpose was in gaining control of their own state, which is why um, you know, you don't see like – some of them were members of the Working Men's International, the first international. In fact, Theodore Kuno was the chief statistician of the Knights of Labor and was also Marx's man in 
the U.S. and was himself a member of the international until it crumbled. So there are many people who thought the way it was to be internationalist in the U.S. was to be in the Knights and to do what you could. And there were many, many members of the international who were in the Knights. But uh, – and there was news from abroad in their journals and stuff. But in terms of actual actions, I think their primary focus was on how do we democratize the state. Speaking of Marx, the, the, the Labour Republicans, the Knights, seem somewhat Marxist right. in their approach. But it was unclear in your book whether they were reading Marx. Were they? And who were they reading? Well, it cannot be said that their primary literature was Marx. The best information we have about their libraries comes from their national journal, which in the back would list reading material. And it was a complicated grab bag. I mean, they had all these reading libraries, and I've tried to track down what was actually in those libraries in terms of catalogs, whatever, and it's been hard to find an existing catalog of the reading libraries of any particular location. So um, the next best thing is to see what's listed for sale and for distribution in these journals, both the city journals of the Knights and then in the Journal of United Labor, which is the national one. And it's a grab bag. As I say, some of it is cooperativist literature like by George Holyoke and John Stuart Mill, which was sort of you know, how to organize a cooperative, a consumer cooperative or a producer's cooperative. Some of it was socialist literature from the time. I believe in some later libraries, there's Babel's book on socialism and women. Uh, we know that Jenny Marks lectured to the Knights of Labor in Chicago. She went on a big tour. And so there must have been some – like the Communist Manifesto must have been around there somewhere. Uh, we know certainly that German – radical German labor Republicans who eventually joined the Knights were children of or were themselves – uh, readers of various bits of Marx and German because they had closer contact with it. And then you have writings by the Knights themselves, uh, which include various treatises on political economy, various sort of working men's political economies, which do this labor theory of value analysis. And and then whatever else sort of passed for socialist literature at the time, actually. It was all there. They were reading a lot of socialism. Um, Why was Marx not so inf influential at the in the U.S. at the time? There was not that much in English. Right. So that's a major It's just problem. a translation problem. So there's a translation problem. Um, you know, famously, Gompers is the one who claims that he's the first American Marxist because he's the first major labor leader who actually read Marx. Because wow. he did when his family's, what is it? What are they, Dutch or Belgian? I can't even remember. I think Belgian. But, um, you know, Debs doesn't read Marx until he's in jail in 1895. Yeah. And... Before then, he's sort of – he's in fact basically a labor republican. Yeah. So the, the Nick Salvatore's excellent biography of Debs really shows this, that he comes to socialism organically through these republican ideas. Right. That the old agrarian public has been destroyed. We have these two classes. Republican freedom means everyone being independent. In the modern industrial economy, that means workers owning and running the show. And then he reads Marx. He already had these ideas and then he reads Marx and sees, oh yeah, class struggle, socialism. But it's a translation problem, which is why English socialism factors heavily. The other reason, there is a organic ideological reason why they would have not, I think, been so attracted to Marx or there would have been a minority is that Marx is explicitly calling for the use of political power and the state 
to expropriate property and redistribute it and for state ownership of the means of production. And at the time, then, that makes him a kind of state socialist, not as we've come to know that term per se, but at the time it means because we're as, going to coerce to property owners. Per se, right, it's, it just means Stalinism or something. Yeah. Marx is, is, is the opposite. But, but, yes. but compared to the Knights, these days, but yes. compared to the Knights, he's the state socialist. So these days we want to emphasize yeah. Marx's libertarian right. dimensions right. because he's not about just um, undemocratic planning boards. But at the time, Marx's battle with socialism itself um, was to uh, was to be against its voluntarism. That's part of it. I think people sometimes think that his critique of utopian socialism was just about projecting forward plans. It's not that, actually. It's also that they were voluntarists. They thought the way to do this was for just individuals to exercise virtue, accumulate a little property, maybe hope the philanthropists will help subsidize the formation of one of these communities or these workshops. And go be model socialists somewhere. Go be model socialists and then be able to survive on the market. And Marx's point was, no, capitalism is a systematic social order that you can't piecemeal eliminate. You need the political power of the state to expropriate the property coercively. And the knights wouldn't have been comfortable property. with this. And most knights were uncomfortable with that. They were so uncomfortable with centralized coercive power, actually, that they had trouble even agreeing to have a mandatory fee for a national strike fund. So the funny thing about the knights is that they emphasized producers' cooperatives because they thought that would eliminate class conflict. And they were sort of reluctantly supportive of strikes because they saw it was where they won their biggest support. They would grow dramatically when there was a victorious strike by workers who claimed to be knights or were knights. But they didn't love the highly conflictual class, openly militant class conflict aspect of it because they thought that it undermined the the possibility of living sort of together freely because it was just violent. And they not unreasonably had the experience at that time of most strikes losing. And so they thought the only real way to permanently resolving the problem was not strikes since they also thought it just entrenched being a working class as an identity because they thought it was just about winning better wages, better hours. So they didn't see it as a real instrument of power for overcoming um, class conflict and they wanted people to instead devote themselves to becoming you know, virtuous individuals who exercised stealth discipline, saved and formed these cooperatives that then would outcompete employers on the market. And there was a role for state in regulating the market so that capitalist producers wouldn't undercut producer cooperatives. They did kind of accept that. But what they were resistant to was anything that smacked a violent revolution and anything that smacked of state coercive expropriation of property. And I think those things would have made them concerned about Marx and did make them concerned about Marx and similar arguments. And um, it's and, important to keep that in view. And so while in many ways they are breaking from Owenite conceptions, they are compared to Marx still sort of Owenites. Yes. I mean, they're, they're not Owenites in that they didn't want to set up separate communities. But the, And Owen himself becomes later in life more sympathetic to, you know, sort of the trade union movement mm-hmm. and that more militant side of labor. But in that voluntarist dimension, they're definitely um, concerned with Marx and similar kinds of ideas. And they even have a very uneven relationship to party politics because some people say, don't vote, win on the shop floor and, and through the exercise of your social power. But then it's obvious that, there are f- that they're getting crushed by the state 
there's extremely violent repression of these strikes that knights are part of. And they also see that capitalists use the state to undermine the cooperatives they try to – and so they realize, well, we need our friends in the state. And they sometimes run candidates but more often kind of will endorse, endorse a candidate but not on like a party line basis and they're resistant to forming their own party. And that's why I think actually their most radical descendants are therefore the Wobblies. The Wobblies are really in a way, interestingly, the purest expression of the most radical edge of labor republicanism because they call for a co co cooperative commonwealth. They want workers to run things themselves. And the theory of the general strike is interestingly a theory of a purely voluntary transformation of society. Everybody just puts the tools on the ground and says, we will not go on this way. We're going to just set things up this other way. And if you don't want to do that, good luck finding someone to work in your factories. And we're not going to sign contracts even if they <laughs> ameliorate the present conditions. We're not, not going to sign contracts. We're not going to that... vote. We're also not going to use violence. Yeah. And I think it's important that – um, the theory of the general strike, th I think it's sort of underappreciated how much the Wobblies really articulate an, a, their own political theory of the role of a general strike, which is continuous with this sort of libertarian, not in the modern libertarian sense, sure. but sort of liberty emphasizing uh, role of just voluntary collective action. And while in some sense it's clearly coercive of employers, if they can't find any workers to do the job, then they have to go along. But it isn't threatening them with violence. When you read Haywood and when you read Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and when you read a lot of these sort of um, theorists of the general strike, it's not always super consistent, but the basic thought is a second generation view of the kind of labor Republican theory of revolution, which is that we're not going to use the state. We're going to collapse it by just stopping. We're going to Shut shit down, as they say. <laughs> well, they didn't say it like that. But that's our contemporary version of the same is that the general strike is a form of revolution that's consistent with the respect for individual freedom because everybody's – nobody's just going to get someone to go along with violence. We're just going to refuse to go along with how you want things to go. And since we're all the people doing the work, good luck. Non-cooperation. It's not cooperation, yeah. I mean it has a positive vision of sorts. And you know, the wobbly vision of what the economy was going to look like is a little vague. I don't think it's as vague if we understand it to just be this same view of the cooperative commonwealth, which is self-governing worker cooperatives connected by a market mechanism selling their goods. That creates a republic within the republic that supplants the yes, republic exactly. As it I will say this is the other place where Marx is not comfortable. Yeah, with them and for them, which is right. that Marx thought you only overcome the law of value by eliminating the market, because otherwise, if you still have these cooperatives primarily relating to each other through the sale of their products, you've just turned workers into being responsible for. Imposing the discipline of market on themselves, the market on themselves, and that's Mill's view. That's what Mill thinks is so great. They'll learn the limits to what they can do. Whereas for Marx, it's like, no, freedom is overcoming market-based production itself. And, and I think there's fact, actually the more to say about this when it comes to leisure. But yeah, and in fact, the Knights experienced this obstacle concretely in their <clears throat> efforts to form cooperatives. Retaliation right. from capitalists who they that's depended right. on 
to yes. buy and sell goods from. That's right. And that's why they sort of organically learn that they're going to need the state to do something. So I found, after the book was published, I found um, this marvelous petition from 1883 by a bunch, by the Central Labor Committees to the Senate Committee on Labor and Education, where they say, look, we, you call it labor's quantitative easing, which is they basically say, look, we want a, a greenback. We want paper money. We want loose monetary policy, a, a people's monetary policy. But not just that. What we want is the Senate to regulate wages and hours, and we want them to make um, fully backed loans to any workers who want to form cooperatives so that any – because we're, we can't accumulate the capital to start them. So we want the state to loan us and to guarantee these loans. So if a bank gives the loan, then the state will back it. So a kind of Fannie Mac for – Freddie Mac for cooperatives. And that way, if we're having financial trouble, the state will back it. We'll set it up. And then in order to maintain our financial viability, we want you to regulate wages so that our capitalist competitors can't outcompete us by suppressing – by exploiting their workers so badly that they can sell things at an unfair low price. And so they start to see actually we're going to kind of need the state to engage in very fo various forms of intervention in the economy to get this workers' cooperative thing off the ground. And effectively, the state's now messing with the market because it's setting prices. It's setting loan rates and interest rates to promote certain kinds of economic activity after others. And this really is quantitative either. We're going to buy. We're going to infinitely buy all this loan but to promote workers' cooperatives instead of promoting – you know, the solvency of AIG and Goldman Sachs. You know, we were discussing the reading rooms recently, and these reading rooms were important to the Knights because they thought it was essential yeah. to cultivate a new type of educated, critically thinking person, yeah. alert to the injustice of their condition, yeah. and capable of scientifically analyzing it to yeah. govern right. in politics and in industry. Yeah. And also because it was an end in and of itself. There was something a little more yes. romantic there. Absolutely. Why was worker self-organization and self-cultivation so important to them? Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest, my favorite thing about the Knights of Labor was the emphasis on self-emancipation. And that's sort of my chapter five of the book. It's got the five chapters and it's slightly standalone. So I think when people have read it, they focus so much on this sort of – Oh, the critique of wage labor and cooperative labor. But I think it's the emphasis on freedom and that individualism I mentioned before on believing everyone has a natural right to freedom and being under their own power. Uh, and that's what respect for freedom means. It just organically then connected to the idea that people should emancipate themselves, that it's up to them. Not just as a sociological fact. Well, they, as they said, the powerful never give up their privileges voluntarily. So that was a fact. You're never going to get this if the – those who are currently dependent and unfree don't try and achieve their freedom through their own efforts. But it was also a matter of saying, look, do you take your freedom seriously? Are you seriously committed to being free? If you are, then you prove that by being unwilling to you know, participate in your own subjection. You have to engage in resistance and in collective mass resistance. And you're capable of it. I mean, that's the thing is that it was actually, it seems demanding. Wait a second. These people are, you know, threatened with state repression and legal violence. And they also are denied educational opportunities and they're exhausted. Seems unreasonable to man this of them. 
But it actually was a way of, I think, showing the kind of highest respect for them as potential equals who are going to be able to govern their affairs through their own efforts. And I think it's a lesson for the present. I mean, I think I personally find the left not consistently committed to that thought. The left seems to easily tick into thinking that the way we're going to make claims on the behalf on behalf of the oppressed is to show them to be victims, helpless victims, so destroyed and tyrannized and overwhelmed that we must come to their aid or the state should come to their aid or something like that. And so you kind of end up not always intentionally infantilizing the oppressed and not keeping in view the fact that people are agents and they can act freely if they come to value their freedom over everything else, require taking great risks and having great sacrifices. But if freedom is really the, the point of this, then you have to take seriously the, their education, their, their capacity to learn things and to understand political and social affairs and create the institutions where they can then develop those capacities. And that's what those reading rooms were about. They created their own reading rooms. There was a, their own lecture circuit. Um, and the point of these things was to say sort of existing forms of education. It wasn't just that educational opportunities were denied to people, but also the new mass public education sort of educated people according to what was the kind of ruling ideas of the time. The public education would reflect, above all, the way the existing state, which was itself pretty corrupt, related to these people. And that the kind of education that people whose freedom you take seriously need is going to be one that means teaching them the, you know, reading political economy and reading about socialist theory and cooperative theory and reading some of the most challenge, uh, challenging and unorthodox works. And it's like the opposite of Stalinism. The, certainly the opposite of Stalinism and opposite of the soft Stalinism of modern public education. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, the Stalinism of the, of, of the free market which is just um, producing people ready for the labor market who are useful in that sense. So, And so the reason I, I really care about this is that I think that, you know, to them it was obvious, not just that you had to create these separate spaces for worker self-education where they could lecture to, them, to each other and learn from themselves and have reading libraries. But also it just was obvious then that um, you defended self-government everywhere and you would never sacrifice the idea of self-government for any other good. And this is, I think, a kind of feature of the idea of emancipation that's there in the Knights that I think isn't always well kept in view today, and which I would hope we would learn more from them. You also argue that it was a contradiction of this very view of things that yes. led them to support Chinese exclusion. Right. Uh, they... They agreed with the Republican tradition that only independent people could rule, but turned it on its head by saying that the dependent thus must become independent. But you write that that in turn facilitated a racialized stigmatization of those who seemed inherently yes. dependent or too accustomed because of biology, culture, whatever, to yes. dependency. And you write, quote, if the success of the cooperative commonwealth depended on the agency and therefore the virtue of the dependent classes themselves, then at some point it was hard not to blame these wage slaves right. for their servility. Yep. And that, quote, 
until the enslaved start behaving like they deserve their freedom, deserve, deserve their freedom, they deserve their slavery. And then, quote, once one could blame the servile for their servility, it was not a great leap to connect servile natures to racial and ethnic differences. Yeah. I think that's a smart analysis. And my, my question is, how did the labor relations that particular groups were subjected to become read as racial characteristics yeah. inherent to those groups? And why did that apply to Chinese workers, yep. but not to free black ones? And what does, because you know, your work and Aziz's work is really looking at the, Aziz Rana's work, yep. what the limits are to the universality of Republican conceptions yep. of American freedom. Yeah. So what does it say? What yeah. does it reveal about the nights and the moment they were living in yeah. that the line was drawn at the Chinese at Chinese workers in particular? Good. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think what's happened is that people have tried to find in the idea of freedom or Republican freedom the tendency to exclude and therefore violate its own universality, whereas I think it's to be primarily found in the politics of freedom. So I love Aziz's book, uh, The Two Faces of Freedom. And there he really shows you had this, 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 it's two faces because on the one hand, you had this very exclusionary idea of freedom only among the equals. The settlers. The settlers, the white settlers, so that they could dominate everyone outside, Native Americans, blacks, women, so on. And then, but then you had the more universal ideal uh, among people like Skidmore, who's also in Aziz's book. And right. uh, I think, I'm pretty sure he's yes. in, yeah, he's yes. in Aziz's book. And um, these other figures who are able to say, no, look, the idea is a universal one. Everyone is free. And so you're left with this thought. And so I, I like Aziz's treatment of it because it's very fair. There is both the exclusionary tendency and the universal one. And it's a, it's a challenge. Can, it, can the universal one ever really realize itself? Um, but others have been, I think, much less judicious. I think Rodiger is an example, but others who say, no, you know, these universal ideals always contain within them at the level of the idea their own exclusion or particularity. And so the problems with the very aspiration of being universal, I think it's just a mistake. And it's a mistake because it really puts the emphasis in the wrong place. I think the real challenge of which the Knights of Labor are just one instance arises in any politics of self-emancipation because in the politics of self-emancipation, the claim is the oppressed must emancipate themselves. And what that means concretely is they must be willing to value their own freedom so greatly that they're going to act collectively in the face of enormous risk of a great chance of failure and therefore at the chance of making things much worse, not just for them, but bringing all kinds of horrible collective punishment on many of their fellows, including people who had had no part of the resistance. Uh, and that this means that you end up expecting a huge amount of the people who in some ways are least able to do it because they have the least amount of social power. What that means is you end up building up a picture of what self-emancipation requires. It requires almost heroic attributes. And once the politics gets going, you see some people willing to engage in that sacrifice and others not. And insofar as in order to gauge in that politics, you have to develop a sense of the qualities that you have developed in yourself and are willing to exercise in the face of great danger and risk. And you see others not doing it. You start thinking, well, why aren't they doing it? 
And it's very hard to balance in the moral psychology of that politics the thought, well, but it's very hard, so we should have some respect for them. And the, why aren't you with us? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you with us? And to start thinking, well, you're not with us because of something essentially different about you than me. But, the and re- this but is also how the, the left- reason that's available as an idea to them about Chinese already, is yes. because it's a pre-existing white supremacist idea about the organization of sure. labor that's right. that they've that they've rejected as applying to black people, but is was originally yes. applied to black people, and now they're applying it to Chinese. It's already there in the present. I mean, so I can I'll, I'll get to the Chinese as a specific example yeah. of why it works this way, but it's just worth noting that. Um, I think the first move there is just the tendency to start then at some point blaming those who are in a a servile condition or the the unfree for their own servitude. Sure. And to note that this is a habit of thought you find in many different places. So you find some slaves blaming other slaves for their own servitude. King – says that the great project of nonviolence was first to eman- was first to emancipate the so-called negro the, the the black person in the south from the habits of mind that they had acquired so it's king saying it about i mean part of it was to destroy the stereotype that that black people were happy with jim crow that they passively accepted it but he also thought it was part of overcoming certain habits of mind to lead people to try and care about their freedom above all else and be willing to brave violence and so on. David Walker in a very different setting, you know, kind of challenges slaves to not be servile. So you get much more demanding claims that come very close to blaming those who are unfree for themselves. And it's just natural. It's, it's, you can't just wish it away. There's something inherent in left-wing ideology and analysis that says at the very least the oppressed people are not reacting to their oppression in right. the ideal way. Yeah. Well, and, if, and that we expect did. it. It's expected of them mm-hmm. that they act to emancipate themselves. Mm-hmm. The, and I think it's worse to give up that expectation because then you're infantilizing them and you're turning them into pure victims and you've lost any connection with freedom than to find a way of maintaining the expectation without falling into ways of treating their failure to act as a sign of some intrinsic natural difference. I think the left talks about elements of the working class this way, actually, sure. particular white workers, actually. I right. think what they've done is um, racialize them, <laughs> you I, know, to I, say I, they, they act this I've way, they fail. That frequently. Yeah. Yeah. They've There's become certainly a racialization of especially so-called white trash, which is a yeah. specifically racialized formulation because it's yeah. white elites saying basically that poor white people are not actually right. white. Right. They're something different. They're white So trash. I think many people say it. What's distinctive about how the left does it is it right. comes from the thought, well, they've just accepted their unfreedom. They failed to act in the in the according to the standards that we hold them to. Mm-hmm. And so so um so I think that's so Chinese there. Workers. And then the way it comes up in the Chinese workers then is that so you already have these sort of racial ideas out there that have already been kind of inherited. And the question is how far can you push them back? What happens to Chinese workers is they they say, look, these Chinese workers seem to be willing to work for nothing. They seem to care so little for their freedom that they'll work for just these subhuman wages and live in awful conditions. So it just must be the case that they're so habituated to their own dependence and lack of freedom 
that there's something about the Chinese that makes them so different, that they're willing – it's not just that they don't strike whatever. They just accept these terrible wages. And it interacted with a much older tradition of so-called oriental despotism, mm -hmm. uh, which um, – They were enthralled of, to the emperor. Enthralled to the emperor. They're celestials whose minds are not in this world but in the other and these sort of other horrible kind of racial ideas. Um, but they needed some way of explaining themselves why they didn't act. It has to be said, not all knights felt this way. So there, there was, was some quite radical, especially uh, in New York. Yeah, in uh, in Brooklyn, Victor Drury, who was yeah. a, a a French expat blanquiste, who uh, actually tried to organize them and have them join the Knights of Labor. And there was a debate against yeah, and he very nearly won leadership from Terence Powderly of the Knights of Labor, and that would have really radicalized right. it. But instead, those tendencies, when the Knights split up, become what's later the Wobblies. Similar to the dynamic that plays out with the Farmers' Alliance, which is never as inclusive right. as the Knights because they're segregated from the get-go. You have the Farmers' Alliance and the Colored Farmers' Alliance. Yeah. But you do have at least like an instrumental case for solidarity, racial solidarity, yeah. not for social equality, not for really like social solidarity, but for political economic solidarity right. made by Tom Watson, right. um, who then when the populist movement, which is the Knights and the Farmers Alliance, gets crushed and yes, loses, right. he reverts to this account of, of racialized black dependency right. as threatening yes. the white the white farmer and white worker. Absolutely. Yeah, people forget that a lot of these shifts, even in the same figures, are a product of the defeat, the violent defeat often, of the more radical tendencies. So the, those, the Jim Crow constitutions, the 1880s and 1890s, the legal counter-revolution by the Supreme Court, the 1880s and 1890s, uh, the changes in you know sort of voting laws and all these things are a product of the end of Reconstruction, the defeat of the more racially egalitarian tendencies among the Southern populist movie, and the violent destruction of the Knights. It's eighteen eighty six after especially after eighteen eighty six, and that then you get the emergence and the predominance actually of these much more racialized and ethnically exclusive visions of freedom or workers' rights and citizenship. And that they that those really take hold once you've defeated the more radical tendencies within, the, within these sometimes the same groups. And uh, Tom Watson's a really good example of that, I think. But um, An incredible one. Powderly, never that radical has to be said. But is another good good example. He goes on from leading the Knights to becoming the commissioner of immigration and leading on Chinese exclusion. He basically I mean, becomes like the the like yeah. border patrol chief of his day. Yep, it's he becomes. Like, yeah, no, it's awful. I mean, you yeah. know, it's 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 an ignominious end. Yeah. Um, um, although they, you know, the Knights, the the official position, of the Knights had always been not very good about the Chinese. Mm -hmm. There was almost nobody who was really better. Right, um, and I think what people sometimes also forget about that is that Chinese exclusion was a sop that the northern industrialists threw to the working class in order to keep the spigot of European labor open, and especially was, to the West Coast working class, especially to the West Coast working class, but even to the Northeast. I mean, they thought they were kind of getting it, and it reinforced the ethnic identity. The ethnic unity of the Northeast worse than class because they thought, okay, well, we can still have these white Europeans come. And it meant further that you could then have Jim Crow 
because the, the point was the only terms on which I think the northern industrialists would have accepted Jim Crow, which fixed the southern agricultural proletariat on the land, was if they had an alternate source of industrial labor. And that meant Europe. So if you'd had real immigration control, I think actually you would have had the end of Jim Crow. And the way we know this is it's what's happened during World War I. World War I leads to a shutting down of the borders, a, a rapid decline in European immigrant labor. And that's when the North starts going down and recruiting black labor and eroding the institutional bases of um, Jim Crow. And you get the northern migration starts. Uh, because the supply of labor to northern industry, which is a condition for the industrialization of the north, dries up. So Chinese exclusion is this sort of midpoint that allows the class compromise between northern industrialists and southern plantation owners and southern, you know, sort of landed uh, proprietors to go on. The southern gets their dependent, highly exploited southern black labor force to exploit and fixed on the land through the Jim Crow laws and practices and lynchings. The North doesn't have to worry about not having enough labor because you have an endless supply and the working class thinks it got something by excluding the Chinese and in principle use of the state when at the same time it's just getting beat to a pulp anytime they go on strike and anytime they try and use the state for maximum hours legislation or workers protection law constantly struck down. So it's a real sop and, it's a, and, it's, and it does very little um, because it does little to destabilize the real connection between immigration and the exploitation of southern black workers. I want to finish briefly just by sort of talking on like wh where this all went, how it fell apart, where yeah. it leaves us today. Why did labor republicanism lose out to laissez-faire republicanism and what impact did that defeat have on the one hand, do we still see it surviving this yeah. language in, in American history through, let's say, the CIO strike waves or yeah. in the 30s or the black freedom yep. struggle after that? Yeah. On, not even after that, but through through that period and after. You know, on the other hand, today, when we think about liberty, right. that's something that's invoked by, well, libertarians um, right. and neoliberals to defend the right to, to contract the sale of one's labor right. as they please quote unquote, or to enter into an arbitration agreement right? or to drive a gas guzzling SUV or, you know, remarkably to use the most inefficient light bulb yeah. you would like. This is the kind of, this is right. what, this is, what, this is how liberty and freedom right. are invoked. So, I mean, my primary interest in writing this book, besides just loving the labor history and so on, was to recover a period when freedom was radical so that people could see that freedom as a political value is a complicated political value and that it has the capacity when understood in a certain way to unite a vast number of people in a common project of collective self-emancipation and therefore really has a good claim to being like the primary political value for the left. And it's not always easy to argue this just sort of ex nihilo and so I wanted to point out that this isn't some foreign idea, that it had the capacity to in fact unite a large number of people who are otherwise quite different in a common project and quite rad radical practical politics and uh, vision of the future. And I hope people get that from it and that it inspires people to think about how that could really be the central organizing value today and how it's not just a vision but a claim that – People have the real ability to think for themselves and emancipate themselves from the various forms of unfreedom and denial of self-government that they face. 
and hopefully it disorients people. So I think to take seriously, it means we have to be willing to think that some of the spontaneous commitments we think we have as the left might not be the right ones. So I've run into trouble from people who can't understand why I'm pro-Brexit, for instance. But to me, it's just not, if you believe in self-government and you think that's the primary thing, you cannot be in favor of the EU. <laughs> the EU is the central and sole function of the EU is to deny representative democracy and popular sovereignty and that we do not have any other institutions today that in any way offer people the opportunity to be self-governing. So that's just sort of an so, example of how it works. Well, I got to pause you on that example because, yeah, cause, yeah you're, you get into a lot of debates over this. And I think that maybe your critics, your opponents in that yeah. debate might say, isn't this an example of a danger of labor republicanism and its, and its tendency to espouse a, a, a bounded sense of a national working class. Right. So we sh this this sh we should have another thing. If there's nothing inherent, certainly Marx didn't think so and I don't think they are thought in wanting democracy in one state or w trying to reclaim popular sovereignty in the state you're in and thinking that everybody else shouldn't have it as well. There's nothing inconsistent with thinking I defend popular sovereignty everywhere. I'm in this state, I defend it here and support all efforts everywhere else. I think that's what internationalism meant was it was um, a cooperation among self-governing states um, to uh, would, would be a precondition for any more universal global form of self-rule. But anyhow, that's for another time. Um, but I'm just bringing it up because I think to really embrace the um, the what these ideas of freedom are about, we have to be willing to see that they're going to scramble some of our given political intuitions and put us in unusual situations. Why did it lose, um, it's a complicated question. Some of it was because of the enormous violent repression that they faced. Some of it was because the leadership was incapable of actually matching and organizing the radicalism of its members. There was a dramatic growth in the organization in the early 80s. And that required an ability of the leadership to really move away from its slightly more Protestant and conservative tendencies and adapt to and recognize what it would mean now to really properly lead a mass working class movement that was transracial for men and women um, and that was more militant in its inclinations than they were. And I think- they, they had a certain na naivete towards the sort of militancy that would be required. Yeah. You opened the book by talking about a really inspiring but ultimately quite tragic, tragic organizing effort amongst, I think, cane workers- Black, black, black cane, cane workers, workers in Louisiana, yeah. and they're they're massacred. Yep, and that's already when the when it's coming apart. I mean, it came apart in in a little bit for a reason very familiar to the left was they went they start you know in eighteen eighty six they decide we're going to organize black workers in the South, and they were not ready for the violence and repression of that, and it also was handled in a way that led the more conservative craft workers who become the AFL to retreat from this more radical, expansive vision. And you don't see a reappearance of that at a mass level until the CIO. It's there in the Wobblies, but, and you know, the United Mining Federation and certain organizations, but not nearly on that kind of mass scale until the CIO. And that's in a way the last time I think you have a real mass organization able to express something like this sort of um, universalistic vision, not just on paper but uh, in a way that's able to appeal to hundreds of thousands and even millions of, of workers. A quick question on, on the other side of, of this republicanism debate, the laissez-faire republicanism 
that wins out, mm. you tell you, you there's there's a lot that you write about in terms of how that's developed first and foremost by the courts yep. in all these anti-labor decisions beginning with the slaughterhouse yep. cases of 1873 but and you write that by the 19 the Supreme Court's 1905 Lochner case yeah. this this infamous anti-labor case what we would think of today as a liberal notion of of negative freedom freedom as non-interference was quote reemerging as its own principle mm. loosening its connections to Republican foundations. Yeah. So how how is how is it that what we might think of as this this liberal idea right. emerges as such alongside the defeat of labor republicanism? Yeah, that, that's a really complicated story, and I wanted to keep the book short enough that people would read it. And so I focused on the court because it was the most politically significant sure. way in which this idea of freedom became sort of practical, but that it happened also among various other sort of groups in the public sphere, mostly really, you know, connected to employers. But what happened was that you got people saying, well, yes, we value independence, but all independence means is that as a matter of law, no one gets to, without your consent, do anything to you. And that means all of the relationships you have with people have to be relationships you consented to. And so they, that requires us to imagine that, for one thing, we're not already in certain kinds of social relationships with people before we engage in any particular act of consent, which was what the Republicans denied, labor Republicans denied. We're not these free-floating atoms who kind of appear in society and then build relationships through contracts. We're already either propertyless or propertied. From birth. From birth or sort of in the development of yeah. our lives. Um, uh, due to forces that we aren't controlling but which are determining the structure of our relations with others. That's the problem of structural domination. Yeah. And secondly, the contract doesn't actually control in any meaningful way the actual relationship of power in the workplace. That's the other reason they start talking about the women caprice of employer is that all the contract is is like an agreement about hours and wages. It's not very specific. And the assumption is, for no good reason really, that employers ought to have all of the residual power to control the workplace, even though none of those matters are really agreed upon in the contract and in many ways cannot be because of all the unknown aspects and contingent features of what goes on at work. So the laissez-faire version is, sort of denies all that. And it says, no, uh, to be free is just to have no one interfere with you when you decide to make a contract or quit a job. Um, and that's what it mounts to being independent. And once that's won, then in a way, you've just won a space for this other idea of freedom because it's a really thin, implausible view of independence itself. Um, um, but it wins kind of, a kind of moral authority for this other view of freedom as just um, people not interfering with you when you make a contract. But you write that in the late you know, in the, I guess, like the 1870s, that people are still, judges are still defending that, maybe politicians, I'm not sure, yeah. are still defending it on, yeah. on, on Republican grounds. They're defending it in different ways. I mean, part of the thing is um, they're defending it on Republican grounds insofar as that remains a significant part of public discourse, but they're also just defending it on independent grounds as the proper way to think about freedom. Because it's, it's sort of the... 
it's a bit the backwash of the Civil War. I mean, what it sort of seems like people can agree on is slavery is bad because it's unfreedom. It's unfreedom because people aren't free to make the contracts that they want to make. And so, so the other way people argue for freedom is not to go deep at all and just to kind of seize on that thought and say freedom just is not being interfered with when you make contracts and letting the market find the level among all these contracts. So freedom just is being free to make the contracts in a market that since the market isn't controlled by anyone means that wherever anyone ends up is not a product of class legislation as they called it but instead a product of the choices they make. And so they kind of use that argument, which is a more familiar liberal language. Right. I mean, liberalism itself very complicated and, and it's not, contested tradition, as it were. But but that core thought is still there, particularly at this time, to try and defeat this more robust view. And it's that freedom of choice that liberalism prizes that creates a loophole to undermine, to allow liberalism to violate its purportedly most like basic minimal foundational promise, which is protecting people from these extremely overt and direct forms of state domination. If you look at mass incarceration, just the most, you know, incredible system of of, of government repression, like perhaps ever erected on this earth um, by a liberal order because, well, because you've lost your right to not be dominated by the state like this because you made a choice it's just yes. remarkable. <laughs> I mean, I'll end by just saying that the 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 thing about the, we've spent a lot of time talking about oh well, will the Republican view tip into racism and so on? But it's worth remembering that the liberal view was perfectly comfortable denying these basic liberal rights to whole groups of people, so long as they could say, for instance, women are a dependent class who are wards of the state, then. You can actually regulate the working conditions of women because they aren't free. This is they the origin of, of, freedom. of liberal welfare policies, as Theta Scotch Ball. Yes, the origin of liberal is that look, um, we have a certain conception of what kind of person you have to be if you're going to be um, given your liberal freedom, your co- full contract rights, and so on, and be made free by ensuring that the state doesn't interfere with any of your contracts and doesn't regulate your working conditions. But if you're black and we think you're not able to assert your rights through your own efforts, or if we think you're a woman, not able to assert your right through your own efforts because you're kind of dependent, then fine. You can be denied voting rights and we can protect you through this sort of protective legislation. Um, so it's, it's, it's just as much a part of that discourse. The possibility of exiting the labor market is perhaps less possible hmm. than ever yeah. right now. But the notion right. that exiting the labor market is both possible right. and desirable yeah. through – Inventing an app yeah. or right. starting a podcast—it's yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it, it, pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I do. I self-exploit. It, it, it's perhaps more heavily pushed in the dominant culture than ever. Yeah. This idea that you can escape. Yeah. How do you think the labor movement and the left can formulate a critique and a politics that highlights and exploits yeah. this contradiction between the economy that's been sold to us? Yeah. Of like ping pong and yeah. uh, beanbag chairs, yeah. and the economy that we actually work and live yeah. in. It's good. I think that's that. Uh, there's no short, complete answer to that question. But since we've been talking about the labor Republicans, I like their approach um, more than the contemporary. Well, if we could just somehow find a basic income that everybody gets without working, then we'll emancipate them from the labor market. Because I think that really goes about freedom the wrong way. Um, the labor Republicans said 
was part of the reason that they wanted these workers' cooperatives is they thought that when the workers control the cooperative, they'll use labor-saving technology to reduce the hours of labor because they'll become more productive, which means that they can make the stuff that they need in less amount of time and shorten the hours of labor. So labor Republicans thought the following claims were just organically connected. Freedom in work through cooperative control of labor, shorter hours, they all championed eight hours legislation, um, shorter hours because that um, would uh, – allow them to use technology to reduce the amount of labor, the, the amount of time they spent working rather than having to just work more um, to make more profits. And that the point of a lot of cooperative control wasn't just to enjoy freedom by spending as much time at work self-governing, but instead to enjoy their leisure time, to finally have leisure time, because it was, again, only by being able to control the economic consequences of labor-saving technology that they could use it to reduce the hours of labor rather than throw some people out of work and overwork the rest. So they saw freedom as this sort of complex social ideal where it's self-government at work, where everybody has to do some work so that nobody has to do too much. And so that's the best way, I think, for arguing for leisure and reducing the kind of discipline of work is by having collective control over the means of production rather than imagining you can kind of legislate a basic income. Because anyhow, you're going to need to be able to dominate the capitalists so that they consent to any serious basic income. But more than that, because I think the only real way to make sure that everybody does their fair share of the work anyway is to ensure that everyone has access to uh, the opportunity to work and that nobody's made to work too much. And I think that's only done um, through arguing for collective control over work rather than by imagining that you can somehow sort of legislate your way around it. Well, Alex Gorovich, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. This was fun. Alex Gorovich is a professor of political science at Brown University and the author of From Slavery to the Cooperative Commonwealth labor, and Republican liberty in the 19th century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that only in community has each individual the means of cultivating his gifts in all directions, only in the community, therefore, is personal freedom possible. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people about how much you love this show. Please make propaganda for us. 
And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Huge.